I'm one of these people who has never set foot in the I house before, and it's it's a marvelous experience. I'd always heard about it. I knew nothing about it, and it's it's grand to be here, and I, I appreciate the opportunity. I also appreciate the opportunity to share the stage with two people that I admire very much, Susan, for her work in human rights and immigration law over the years. And Dan, I think the last time we were on a panel together, we were battling over whether or not we should go into Iraq. Um, those of you who see Foreign Affairs magazine will note, probably have already noted, that Dan has the lead article in there in the current in the current edition on outsourcing, which I suspect may be a topic that will come up tonight. Hope it will. Um, the title of my talk is Whatever Happened to Globalization? And not to prolong the suspense, it's still with us. Uh, it's not lost in the mail or gone away somewhere. But it's had a hard six or seven years. Um, I think everybody who had anything to do with globalization, the um, supporters as well as the critics have emerged from this experience somewhat sadder, somewhat wiser, and hopefully prepared to move ahead. I want to talk about globalization, what it is, where it's going, what's happening to it, and then uh, following that, talk at least briefly about the problems of the press in covering it. We really do have problems with it. Probably the best way to uh, start out is define globalization because it seems to mean something different to everybody. Um, I went onto the web, came up with all sorts of different definitions. The term globalization describes the increased mobility of goods, services, labor, technology, and capital throughout the world. Somebody else called it the increasing integration of national economies. My own definition is that it's the ability of an entrepreneur to borrow money wherever he can get the best terms, invested anywhere in the world where the conditions, the raw materials, the labor are best, produce anything, and then sell it anywhere around the world using the miracles of modern communication. Uh, <clears throat> it involves several new things. Global communications are absolutely key, the ability to communicate using global uh, communication satellites. It involves the money markets, which are a function of these communications, the idea that money can be sent, can be traded virtually anywhere in the world. There is one big money market, that is that a yen or a euro or a dollar is going to cost you just about the same price no matter where you are in the world. If you're in Frankfurt, Chicago, or Tokyo, the price there is the same. Um, others have defined it as the process by which nationality becomes increasingly irrelevant, which is a controversial idea. Um, it's the process of inter economic integration on a worldwide scale. A less charitable point of view from the anti-globalization movement is it called it the process of exploiting economically weak countries by connecting the economies of the world, forcing dependence on and ultimately servitude to the Western capitalist machine. Globalization, in other words, is a controversial thing. Um, perhaps uh, the most off-the-wall definition that I've heard is what 
somebody said that the truest definition of globalization was the death of Princess Diana. The question being, how come? An English princess with an Egyptian boyfriend crashes in a French tunnel, driving a German car with a Dutch engine, driven by a Belgian who is drunk on Scotch, Scotch whiskey, followed closely by Italian paparazzi on Japanese motorcycles, treated by an American doctor and using Brazilian medicines. <laughs> um, whatever you say about globalization, as I said, our view of it and how it's done has changed a lot over the past six or seven years. It's been a big change since a lot of us wrote books on it. Um, I think the big change is that it's no longer seen as inevitable. There was a time when it seemed to be an unstoppable wave moving across the world that it was something that was just automatically going to happen. And now we are beginning to pay more attention to history, the fact that there was, there have been earlier waves of globalization. There's always been uh, world trade, of course, and investment in other people's countries, but the real integration of global economies, world economies, was fairly far advanced in the 1890s and probably the first decade, the first 15 years of the 20th century. Um, and then came a series of catastrophes, the two world wars, the depression, killed this process dead. It was probably 1975 or 1980 before this process of uh, interdependence of integration of uh, national economies got back to the place where it had been in 1914 when the First World War broke out. Uh, so we no longer quite see it as an unstoppable force. Um, First books, including mine, came out seven or eight years ago, and we treated it as really kind of an unstoppable force. From my point of view, those of us who were more critical, we saw it as a force, not as a force of nature, but as something that was man-made and had to be tamed, guided, uh, steered for the benefit of the people who lived within it by um, political and social forces. Others, Tom Friedman being the big example, saw it as an unstoppable force that was good for us, just relax and enjoy us. Tom felt that, um, what was the phrase that we, the electronic herd would put us into golden straitjackets? I think that Tom, Tom has a weakness for metaphors. <laughs> Anyhow, this was all in the book, The Lexus and the Olive Tree, and I think the fact is that the olive tree has had a few bad seasons, and Alexis seems to be in the garage for repairs. Um, some things are still moving on. This business of the global money markets, the money spinning around the world, not only being moving around the world for the productive reasons of trade or for investment, but for the more speculative reasons, currency exchange, currency changing, uh, uh, derivatives, has pretty much doubled over the past six or seven years. It is now something like $3 trillion per day, according to the Bank for International Settlements, uh, $900 trillion a year. Um, <clears throat> if you took $1 bills and stacked them 900 trillion high, you'd be way past the moon. In other areas, it's been a tougher time. Trade has been practically stagnant, um, going up 3% 
one year, which is uh, barely half of what it was before, going down three or four percent the next year. Some of this due, of course, to 9/11. Other other parts of it due to um, the general slowdown in global economies, including the um, brief recession and <clears throat> weak recovery here in this country. Um, the big thing that really drove um, uh, globalization was not trade so much as foreign direct investment. That is companies putting money in somebody else's country, buying up, starting a factory in some other country, or more likely having mergers and acquisitions. This is a bigger thing than trade. In other words, the um, amount of product that comes out of foreign-owned assets uh, around the world is much bigger than uh, total world trade. And that really has gone down. That was something like 1.4 trillion in the year 2001. The next year, it was barely half of that, and it hasn't recovered much since then. A lot of this, I think we can say, had to do with 9-11, just a fear of uh, uh, investing somewhere else. Not all of it, because part of this money went to third world countries, and Western investors are very cherry about going into third world countries now. But still, the bulk of it is transatlantic between the United States and Europe, and that has slowed down too. So what happened? What what? cause this unstoppable force suddenly to hit a wall to the point that people can really sponsor a talk on whatever happened to globalization. Several things, most of which you remember from um, the headlines, some of which you remember only too well. First off was the Southeast Asian financial crisis from 1997. Southeast Asia, the countries of Southeast Asia, had gotten rich off of globalization. There had been a terrific amount of this foreign direct investment <clears throat> into there, raising the standards of living and the economies of these countries to levels never before reached. These countries had been, if they weren't exactly first world, some of them, like Korea and Taiwan, had become first world, and others were quite quickly rising to that level. level. And we learned in 1997 that what the global economy giveth, it can also taketh away. Our investors, suddenly scared by um, fears that their debts were not going to be repaid, pulled their money out. These economies collapsed in a great rolling crisis that actually swept over Korea, ended up pretty much at the gates of Japan, world's second biggest economy. Um, and it took several years for these economies to recover. Indonesia still hasn't recovered, and there is a new wariness of these nations and a new understanding that unchecked investment, especially unchecked investment in countries that don't have the rules and regulations, the banking systems, other laws and, and structures, that can handle this kind of investment is not an unalloyed blessing. The second thing that happened was the World Trade Organization um, meeting in Seattle in 1999, which was the first big backlash against uh, globalization. You all remember riots in the streets when rocks started flying through the windows of Starbucks. Uh, the world press certainly took notice. Um, a great deal of opposition to uh, further World Trade Organization negotiations also showed up within the councils of that meeting. The meeting itself collapsed. And the idea 
of longshoremen who should, could be expected to approve of trade, or Boeing workers, or environmentalists, or feminists, or people from third world countries getting together in the streets of Seattle to protest this thing we call globalization was startling. What I found even more startling was immediately after that, Business Week took a poll and they asked people, among other things, um, do you understand what the protesters were um, protesting for? Do you have any sympathy for this? And the majority, I think 52 or 53 percent, said yes, they did. This kind of confirmed what I've been doing a lot of speaking around about globalization. And I found a lot of concern, not opposition to it. People thought, could see the advantages of it, but they could see that something big out there was happening to their lives. They weren't sure what it was. They weren't sure they liked it. There was just a general concern. And these are mostly audiences around here in the Middle West. That concern was made manifest at uh, Seattle. Then, of course, came 9-11, which has sometimes been called the globalization of terror. <clears throat> and the idea that this idea that we live so close together that our, not only our economies, but our security are so interlinked was a shock. The second thing that that did, it was the rebirth of the nation state, or at least the rebirth of one nation state, which is ours. The idea, as one of these definitions said, is that um, globalization makes na individual nations irrelevant. Well, there's been a revival of the idea of the nation state, certainly in this country. The whole Bush national security strategy is based on the idea <clears throat> that we are responsible for our own security. We can't rely on any, anybody else. And a general rejection of cooperation in this area with other countries unless we have to. Following on that came the scandals. Enron, for instance, the idea of globalization was always somewhat in the American image. The Washington Consensus, as it was called, um, was what drove um, globalization. The idea of balanced budgets, low taxes, free, free movement of capital, all this enabling the spread of corporations um, around the world to, um, um, to, dr to drive this whole process of globalization. And suddenly some of these corporations like Enron didn't look so good. It took the whole shine off the idealistic part of uh, globalization. It also undercut some of the moves towards uh, harmonization of laws and rules and regulations, accounting for instance. If you're going to have global stock trading, global stock markets, you have to have global accounting standards. And there was a big movement forwards towards standardized accounting rules around the world based on GAAP, which is the American accounting rules, on the idea that Americans have the most advanced accounting rules and the best accountants. Well, then came Arthur Anderson, and the uh, bloom is somewhat off that idea also. Going along with that was the rise of an administration that has been hostile to the whole idea of global governance. As I'm going to get into later, if you're going to have a global economy, 
you have to have the kind of rules and regulations that enable an economy <clears throat> to operate within social uh, rules. And if you have an administration that is hostile to the ideas of global institutions, as this administration has been, there has been no movement forward on that. Then came Iraq and a whole era of international hard feelings, lack of international cooperation. Last year, the WTO got together uh, for, it, um, for its second big meeting after Seattle. It had met at uh, Doha in the Arabian Gulf after Seattle to get a new round of negotiations going. The meeting was set in Doha simply because it is <clears throat> an island set right off the uh, peninsula of Arabia, very easily defended and not a place where uh, uh, demonstrators can e easily come. The next meeting to see how Doha was going and to give it a political push forward took place down in Cancun, Mexico, and it was a failure. It collapsed totally. Uh, one of the reasons it collapsed was because third world nations rose up and said, we are simply not going to go along with this. In past WTO rounds, actually rounds under GATT, WTO's uh, predecessor, third world countries had barely not been noticed. This was a first world operation. The United States, Europe, Japan, Australia, Canada, <clears throat> the other major nations made the rules and the third world went along with them as much as they could. Not always happy and not always happy with the results. In Cancun, a band of emerging third world nations, emerging very big like China, India, Brazil, got together and stopped in its tracks um, movements that the United States and the EU wanted to make towards more harmonization of laws and trade and especially in investment. Um, the meeting collapsed. The WTO talks are very much in trouble and since it's trade that has driven much of globalization, that's another problem. Now we have the big controversy over outsourcing, not of manufacturing jobs anymore, which was the big story of the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, but outsourcing of white-collar jobs, information jobs, uh, middle-class jobs. We have lost um, hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs, millions of manufacturing, hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs right here in Chicago, millions altogether. But the idea was that that was okay because the service economy would soak up this unemployment and provide new jobs, which is basically what happened. The new jobs didn't always pay as well <clears throat> as the old jobs did in the factory. But we saw from the huge job creation during the Clinton years that this was an immensely absorbent economy and could produce these new jobs. Now, if the white-collar service jobs are going, what takes up that slack? Nobody knows yet. This is something that has just begun to happen. I hope uh, Dan and I can talk about this later because the figures on this are very inconclusive. But when you've got jobs of doctors and lawyers, investment bankers, architects being um, moved abroad, then people take notice. You're talking about the jobs of people with real political clout. Even journalists' jobs are being sent abroad. There was a story in the New York Times not so long ago that uh, I think it's Reuters yeah. has outsourced six journalist jobs to Delhi to report on American corporations. 
Now that got journalists' attention, I can tell you. Despite all this, as I said, globalization hasn't gone away. It is a, it is a hardy flower. There's still those money markets. The 100 biggest economies in the world are not all national economies. In fact, they're not even the majority of national economies. 51 of the biggest economies in the world are corporations. The biggest economies, of course, are nations. Us, for a starter, Japan, Germany, England, France. <clears throat> and I think number 21 is Sweden. After that, the vast majority are the huge global corporations that have really driven this whole process of globalization. Uh, not only General Motors and Walmart, but Siemens, Mitsubishi, uh, corporations from around the world that are often stronger, richer, more powerful than the countries in which they do business. Fully 25% of American corporate profits still come from global operations. So globalization is still there, and it's still very important, but people wonder, how hardy is it really? The big worry, I think, centers on another terrorist attack. What, what would happen if there was another big terrorist attack? The thing people usually talk about is something involving shipping. There are something like, you know, as you probably know, most shipping these days is done in these huge container crates roll-on, roll-off things that brought in on um, ships, rolled off, put on trains, carried across, offloaded where they're supposed to go or put on other ships to go somewhere else. Five millions of these crates come into uh, the, through United States ports every year, one million through Long Beach itself. I've seen it estimated that it would take three inspectors two hours to really inspect each crate can't do that because our whole economy is based on the idea of this just-in-time supplies of stuff coming in fast, getting to the factories fast, getting there just in time. It is a very, very fast, efficient um, process that you really can't slow up or the whole thing will come to a halt. So the fact is that each crate gets an average of something like 30 seconds, which means it basically isn't um, inspected. People who worry about this worry about a lot the idea that an Al-Qaeda operative in Kuala Lumpur, say, could pack up a crate with a plausible waybill, put it on a ship, send it to Long Beach, it's offloaded, it's going across the country to um, Baltimore, for instance. It has to spend about two days getting transshipped through Chicago, and during those two days, Somebody presses the button and whatever is inside that thing goes up. What would that do to world trade? It would <clears throat> close down ports everywhere and bring world trade, which is to say the global economy, to a screeching halt. Another big problem is China itself. Nobody knows quite what to do about it. The Chinese economy is modernizing and growing very, very fast. Something like 100 million Chinese workers have been brought into the global economy, which is a terrific achievement, but there's another pool of 900 million waiting there. It's going to take a long time to digest an economy like China's into this global economy. There's a question of U.S. unilateralism. So far, it's interesting that the unilateralist policies of the Bush administration haven't affected globalization all that much. Most of the areas where the Bush 
administration has attacked multilateral institutions have been in political areas through the U.N., the Kyoto Agreement, NATO, arms control, things like that. In the economic area, uh, cooperation has continued pretty much apace, but we did see in Cancun that neither the United States nor, for that matter, the European Union was willing to make the kind of concessions that would enable the Cancun meeting to be a success. Maybe this was hard bargaining, and maybe they don't care that much about the WTO either. Um, there is the fact, as I mentioned, that the rest of the world is demanding to be heard. The Indians, the Chinese, the Brazilians, these are countries with clout. And they're letting it be known that the United States and the Europeans can no longer run this global economy <clears throat> according to their standards. Then there is, finally, this question of outsourcing, which I said is a big mystery. We have figures coming up that say something like three or four million jobs, white-collar jobs, are going to be outsourced. As um, critics of this point of view have pointed out, this is a minuscule amount of the um, uh, national economy. We can stand that sort of thing in an economy that should be creating many millions more jobs than that. The loss of three or four million jobs over the next few years isn't that going to be that much of a problem. But the fact is that nobody knows. I've talked with um, Bureau of Labor Statistics in Washington about this, trying to get a handle. They don't even keep statistics on this. Everything so far is um, guesswork. Um, one author that I read recently on this wrote, and I quote, the outsourcing phenomenon has shown that globalization can affect white-collar professions heretofore immune to foreign competition in the same way that it has affected manufacturing jobs for years. And I do thank Dan Dresner for those golden words. <laughs> um, in the same way that's man affected manufacturing jobs for years, that's kind of a frightening prospect, especially in a city like Chicago, especially here on the south side where we know what the disappearance of manufacturing jobs did. So there is a backlash against globalization. There's a feeling generally that this new global economy really doesn't meet the prime test, which is that of any economy, the well-being of the people who live within it. Unless an economy meets that test, sooner or later it runs up against a deserved political backlash. One way of avoiding this is, as I said, to put some sort of rules and regulations around it, to put goal lines and sidelines on, on the economy, to keep it from being the province of uh, pirates and buccaneers, to make it fair to the people who live within it. Um, to turn a raw economy into a social economy, benefiting society, the idea that these corporations must be corporate citizens, that the laws must benefit the people who <clears throat> must live with, within them, that the global economy is good, or not good, at least fair to everybody. And this involves some sort of a global governance global institutions, not global government, but global governance. We're not anywhere near global government yet and not going to be anytime soon. But a global governance with institutions that are dealing not only with trade, as the WTO does, but with investment or labor and the environment. And it's often being pointed out that this is a huge, almost impossible job. I disagree because we've done it before. 
We did it here in this country um, back in the mid-19th century. All commerce in this country was pretty much state-based. It took place within states, and it was regulated by state agencies. Illinois, the, the government of Illinois, regulated commerce within Illinois. The government of Ohio regulated commerce within Ohio. And then technology came around and undermined that, technology in this case being the railroad and the telegraph, and began to turn the state-based economy into a national economy. And it took pretty much 100 years for our laws and rules of regulation to catch up, to come to terms with an idea of an interstate economy that had to be governed by interstate rules, not by state rules anymore. Okay. We're in that process again. This national economy, the national economies that we've become used to ever since World War II, have now broken the bounds, again, through uh, technology, mostly communications technology, and have spread around the world. But governance still lags behind, hemmed in by national boundaries, unable to follow the economy where it's going, and therefore unable to replicate the kind of rules and regulations that we set up on taxation, on labor, on environment, in which we insisted that the people who led our economy, especially the corporations, had to live by the rules of society. The idea, of course, as is often pointed out, is to slow things up. Pure free marketeers say this damages things, that you ought to let the free market roar ahead. Others, like the Yale economist James Tobin, have called this little sand in the gears, just slowing things up a bit, not bringing it to a halt. But the idea is to balance the efficiency of the free market with society's need for stability, to ensure that global capitalism, like national capitalism, enjoys the popular democratic support that enables it to survive. None of this is happening now under the Bush administration, and I would like to submit that this is going to be one of the main tasks of the next administration, to get <clears throat> this process back on the rails. Finally, I would like to talk a little bit about the problems of covering this whole thing, and the problems are immense simply because it's so big. We're talking globe here. No reporter, no single journalistic enterprise can really get their arms around the globe. It's too big. You can, you can cover a local economy. You can cover the effects of the global economy going on here. But to really understand what's going on in this process of globalization takes global-minded reporters, which is a pretty bionic concept. And we, do, we don't have those yet. Um, but the problem then, of course, is um, that it's not being covered properly, which means that readers and people who buy newspapers, listen to TV stations, listen to the radio, are failing to that degree to understand the forces that are shaping this world. There are several problems here. First off is um, the mindset, I think, that most global issues are treated by the media as national. Anything dealing with trade, investment, jobs, currency, we see that strictly from an American point of view. We don't see the international pressures. If jobs move from here to India, we're very quick to see that this really hurts the United States, at least in the short run. Where 
because we don't bother to report it from india, we don't go there and um, report how this how this is affecting the economy in india. when the dollar goes down here, it goes up somewhere else. how is this affecting uh, other countries? we don't bother to report that. we just report uh, what the effect is going to be here. a lot of the problem here, like uh, uh, speaking as a provincial newspaper man now, uh, has to do with the shortcomings, I think, of the Washington Press Corps, which really does see things from a parochial Washington, narrowly political point of view, writing on the um, <clears throat> American economy, writing on the political push and pull in Washington without ever bothering to ask people from other nations what they think of it. There's another factor here, and it's an interesting one, is that as corporations go global, as corporations in almost any business you can think of are going global these days to survive, the news media remains resolutely national. There's a couple exceptions, CNN, maybe the International Herald Tribune in Paris, but mostly, most newspapers are bound by their national boundaries, if that, circulate within a nation, are, have very little circulation outside their nation. Um, and this is true not only for American uh, newspapers, but for newspapers in Europe too. German newspapers are bought mostly in Germany. French newspapers are bought mostly in France. A lot of this has to do with language, but the upshot is that while goods, services, people, ideas are flooding around the world, the news, the way most people try to make some sense out of their world remains very much nation-bound. And until we uh, figure out some way for the news media to break these national boundaries, to operate globally, and to see the world globally the way corporations, other corporations do, then we're not going to be doing our job. <clears throat> I think the future is probably going to be more global communications. This is probably going to be more global communications companies, countries, um, communications companies operating not as the Tribune, for instance, does, just with American properties, but with properties around the world. This increases uh, media conglomerates and empires, but it's probably going to be necessary to compete and actually to do the job on a global scale. There's going to be more use of the Internet. NGOs, non-governmental organizations, have already twigged on this. They, you get small NGOs here in the United States that much expand their reach, their knowledge, their power by linking up with NGOs in other countries through the Internet, exchanging information, exchanging news, often being able to influence the policies of the government by doing this. Um, they're smart, and I think the news media here should follow them. One other thing that I think is going to happen is more international cooperation between journalists. The Tribune, for instance, has about 12 correspondents scattered around the world. That's good. That's better than any other newspaper between the two coasts, but it's, it's not enough. I think in the future you're going to see newspapers like the Tribune and other newspapers striking arrangements with journalists in other countries. Um, an English-speaking reporter on Dagens Nieder in Stockholm, or on Hurriyet in Istanbul, or <clears throat> on um, Reforma down in Mexico, getting arrangements with journalists there to write articles for the Tribune, say, calling them up and saying, 
there's a good story in Mexico. Our correspondent isn't there. Will you please write this for us? And one thing that we would get out of this is a story that is written from a Swedish point of view or a Turkish point of view or a Mexican point of view instead of from this resolutely American national point of view that we have now. I think all this is necessary. I hope it's going to come because it really is going to be vital, I think, for the future of this society. Big economic revolutions shape society. Chicago is a creation of the Industrial uh, Revolution, the Industrial Era, the Industrial Society. Everything we do, this university, the newspapers, the loop, transportation, electricity, communications, how we live and how we think were shaped by the Industrial Era. Okay, we're into a new era now. We are in the global era. Globalization is not going to be stopped. Nothing's happened to globalization. It's still there. It's going to move ahead. We're going to have to live with it, and it has the potential for shaping and changing our society just as decisively as the Industrial Era did. For journalists especially, this is going to be the, the big story of the next century, and uh, they've got to figure out how to cover it. Thank you. I'm going to abstain from the use of the podium. Um, I'll just say a few things before I uh, uh, start to ask uh, Dick some questions, and then, of course, we will invite as many questions as possible from the audience. First, I'd like to curse him out just because, you know, as uh, um, you know, there's always been a nice, clear dividing line, I think, between journalists and academics. You know, journalists know facts, okay? You know, you ask them what the GDP is, the United States. An academic's not going to know that. That's one of those messy empirical factors that you know we really don't want to get involved with. A journalism, a journalist, on the other hand, does. Once journalists actually start making really coherent theoretical, you know, and abstract arguments, well, then frankly, there's just no point in academics being in the business. We don't have a comparative advantage anymore. And so, I think if there are more people like Dick around, uh, I'm, my position is in deep, deep trouble. You can be outsourced. I can be outsourced exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I would also, you know, applaud the, the argument. I think there was something that, that he said about globalization that I think actually captures it perfectly, which is globalization is not an unalloyed blessing. And, you know, there are two parts of that, which is I think it is a blessing. I, I think, you know, if you stack up the costs and the benefits, um, it's very easy to make the case that despite all the costs, the globalization has been, uh, you know, sort of a win-win game, not just, you know, for the United States, but for the rest of the world, but that without question, uh, there are costs involved, and I think, you know, if nothing else, the last six or seven years have certainly highlighted the costs, um, but the benefits haven't gone away. Um, and I will also make one minor nitpick on uh, uh, Dick's talk, and this is not something that Dick does exclusively, but it's, it's something that always drives me crazy, which is the equating of the sort of size of na multinational corporations with states. One of the sort of popular things to do is to point out that, you know, the, the hundred largest, you know, entities out there, you know, more than half of them are corporations. But that's actually not fair because the way that's always done is by judging um, economies by gross domestic product. Gross domestic product is the value added of goods and services produced by a national economy. Whenever corporations are talked about, it's always in terms of sales. Now, sales deals with the value of goods and services, but it's not the value added. Um, it always omits the costs. 
you would actually have to take a look at the profits of multinational corporations to figure out what the value added is that they do. And when you do that, most multinational corporations quickly disappear from the top 100 economic entities. And as I said, Dick is hardly the only person to do this, but uh, it's just sort of a pet, uh, pet peeve of mine. Um, let me ask you uh, a couple questions based on your talk. Um, one of which is the sort of question of how much in terms of sort of economic effects is globalization to blame for either both positives and benefit, or sort of costs and benefits? I mean, the outsourcing thing, for example, you know, as I've looked at the numbers, one of the things that comes, you know, out, comes through loud and clear is that most people, you know, when they lose their jobs, it has very, very little to do with outsourcing. It has a great deal to do with technological innovation, which, you know, as a result of automation actually leads, uh, leads, frankly, to fewer, uh, less demand for workers in certain sectors, which is then picked up by others. So I guess the question is, to what extent is globalization blamed for a lot of things that, in fact, it's not actually responsible for? Um, in part because, frankly, it's an easy target. It's easy to sort of blame this sort of massive systemic force that seems beyond our control. And interestingly enough, particularly in the United States, it seems easier to blame, let's say, globalization than technology, which has always had you know, a much friendlier, uh, more favorable position in the American public. Um, <clears throat> that is a um, very good point. On this business of globalization not being an unalloyed blessing, I would agree with that entirely. I'm, I'm pro-globalization. In fact, most of the anti-globalization people I know say that they're not anti-globalization, they're counter-globalization. This is the word they use. <clears throat> I think the idea is that globalization means nothing unless it can spread the kind of economic well-being that we've known here in the first world throughout the rest of the world. That is the potential and promise of globalization. And if it can carry that out, it will be a marvelous thing. But on the other hand, it cannot be allowed to do this on the backs of workers in the first world, undermining not, and I'm talking a long-term thing here, globalization, trade, investment, does imply upheaval. But in the long term, if the society is richer because of this, and this is wholly read here, I think, at the University of Chicago, and among most economists, um, then it's a plus. If it is not, if um, workers end up paying a permanent price, then you have got a political problem because these workers are left with nothing but their vote. And you, you're not going to have a stable political approval of the process of globalization if the vote, if you have a country that is ruled of form by the losers in this process. Now, is the, um, is the process of uh, globalization to blame for this outsourcing or is it technology? I don't know and I don't see how you split the two apart. Technology is so much a part of globalization. Globalization would not exist without this technology. <clears throat> the ability of communications to transfer information instantly, the idea that companies in this country can have their computer operations done by computer engineers working for something like one-fourth or one-fifth wages in Bangalore doing this overnight so the stuff is back on your desk here in Chicago in the morning. Um, if, you want, if you want to build a house, you've still got to have a real live architect come and take a look at it. But all the drafting can be done by some really smart draftsman 10,000 miles away, sending the, the plans back and forth via technology. Technology does permit the outsourcing of these jobs. 
Now, some of these jobs would be lost anyhow simply because technology enables us to do more with uh, fewer people. But a lot of these are jobs that are going to other countries simply because technology enables them to. I got some recent statistics here from A.T. Kearney that um, in India you have 15,000 employees of General Electric, 3,000 for Intel, 5,500 for Dell, 4,000 for Oracle, 4,500 for Standard Charter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Something like um, 350,000 employees working for American companies in major Indian offshore hubs alone. Um, this is uh, possible only because of technology. Would some of the, does this mean that 350,000 Americans have lost their jobs and 350,000 Indians have got them? No, it's, it's never anywhere that neat. But <clears throat> there, is a, um, there is a job loss here, an effect on jobs, through globalization of which uh, technology is part. Um, I'll just counter that last statistic very briefly. Matthew Slaughter did a study actually taking a look at whether or not there was a correlation between employment by U.S. multinationals overseas and U.S. multinational employment at home. What he found was very interesting, which was that multinational corporations, for every job that is created overseas, two jobs are created in the U.S. by the same firm. Um, so I would, you know, raise somewhat the contention that perhaps that, you know, there's no question that you see employment uh, overseas. The question is whether or not that's actually causing jobs to be lost in the United States. Okay, I haven't seen that. I um, did learn one thing in a um, long career in journalism, that no matter what one expert says here, yeah. you can always find <laughs> another expert over here to say the opposite thing. That, that, that's why God created second paragraphs, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and the phrase, you know, nevertheless. That's right. Um, okay. Um, I think two other questions, and then I'll be happy to uh, take questions from the audience. In terms of fairness and, and globalization, I think one of the interesting debates that's going to uh, go on is whether or not we should be concerned more with inequality globally, or whether we should be concerned more with poverty reduction. Um, and even if you, you know, take a look at, at inequality, you know, if you take a look at sort of what's happened in the global economy over the last, you know, 40 years, generally what people argue who oppose globalization say, if you take a look at sort of pre-1980 at, you know what to have in terms of development patterns. You see more countries, you know, you saw a convergence between rich and poor countries, whereas post-1980, you see, in fact, a divergence. The problem is, is that if you actually take a look at it in terms of individuals, the reverse is the case. You saw a massive, you know, decrease of poverty post-1980. The reason is, is because the two largest, uh, the countries with the two largest populations in the world, China and India, embraced globalization post-1980, and there was massive amounts of poverty reduction as a result. Um, so should we care about sort of inequality among nations or inequality about individuals? Um, you should care about both. Your, your point that the idea of poverty reduction is very important is, mm -hmm. is very well taken, is right. But if you have evidence of growing um, inequality, then it's something uh, that has to be taken seriously. You do have growing inequality between nations, first world nations and nations at the bottom, the African nations, for instance, the Middle Eastern nations, are becoming progressively poor relatively and often uh, um, in an absolute manner. Uh, as we've seen with the Middle East, to the degree that um, terrorism there is a function of poverty, or rather probably hopelessness, uh, this can have very explosive results. Now, the fact is that um, countries where 
that are the poorest, like those in the Middle East and in Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, are the ones that have been least touched by globalization so far. On the other hand, part of this is due to the richer countries misusing their economic clout and uh, trade bills, trade <coughs> farm legislation in this country, keeping out um, imports from African countries, for instance, is a, a perfectly good example. Um, a second example of uh, inequality is not inequality between nations, but inequality within nations. Is, as this process of globalization goes forward, is there increasing inequality within nations between the top and the bottom? And the answer there is pretty much yes. We've certainly seen it in this country in a big way. <clears throat> the gap between rich and poor has been growing. Even in more egalitarian societies like Europe, the gap is growing much more slowly. It's certainly growing in third world countries. Um, this is not it's not an economic development by which one can be very happy, but it's certainly not a political development that you can cheer at all because it, it is explosive. If globalization is seen as enriching the few within countries at the expense of the mass of people, in a lot of countries you got revolution, and that's, that's not going to do globalization any good at all. Okay, my last question before we uh, uh, leave it over to the audience, um, which is, you know, your proposals for, among other things, a Tobin tax, for example, uh, it raises an interesting, and sort of calls for greater global democracy raise an interesting question. For example, um, the IMF recently proposed, you know, in the wake of the Asian financial crisis, the creation of a global bankruptcy regime as a way to shield, um, uh, as a way to make creditors actually pay for making bad loans and also presumably to protect developing countries from having, you know, onerous conditionality requirements in the case of a crisis. Except a funny thing happened when this proposal took place, which was that most of the developing countries opposed that creation of the, uh, that regime. The reason was is because they thought that the creation of this sort of regime was going to raise for them the cost of borrowing capital on the global markets. Um, and this raises an interesting question, which is, Developing countries might not actually share the same attitudes about globalization that people who are, you know, sort of the counter-globalization movement in the United States does. Um, in fact, actually, I can express a, uh, an anecdote from a colleague um, who said that when the Seattle riots, you know, when the battle in Seattle took place, uh, they were in India and were actually having dinner with the head of the Indian Communist Party. The head of the Indian Communist Party was actually convinced that the Seattle riots were engineered by President Clinton as a scheme to actually prevent further liberalization of the U.S. economy. Um, because for them, it seemed impossible. You know, for them, they saw the way out of, of you know, sort of immiserating, uh, immiseration in India as, in fact, further trade liberalization. Um, and so an interesting question is, is that if we have global democracy, I think two questions come to mind. First, are developing countries necessarily going to have the same attitudes as, you know, counter-globalization movements believe? And second, also, how do you determine global democracy? Does China get five times as many votes as the United States because they have five times the population? Is it one country, one vote? What sort of you know, decision-making criteria would you like to see? Um, I don't know this Indian communist, but as somebody who spent four years in Moscow during the so old Soviet Union days, I know the communists generally were able to believe almost anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, this is, this is um, this, this, this global regulation 
like global bankruptcy laws or others, is not something that just benefits the third world. It's something that benefits all of us. A perfect example would be some sort of global version of the IRS, some way that corporations would have to report uh, global earnings and pay taxes in the country in which they earn that money, not being able to shift uh, their um, tax burden through the uh, means of transfer pricing from the country with the high tax rates to the country with the low tax rates. That's what's happening now. And the upshot is that the burden of taxes that are paid by corporations in this country and in most of Europe, too, is dropping precipitously. Uh, somebody's got to make up the difference, and I think it's mostly us. If there are a global tax regime, global laws requiring that, um, would go a long ways towards turning these corporations into global corporate citizens. Um, international, not international laws, but certainly international standards on environment. Not international laws regulating wage rates, but laws requiring companies to negotiate, to bargain collectively with workers. Well, no, nobody's saying that an Indonesian worker should be paid as much as a worker in Chicago. But both ought to have the ability to bargain collectively with their employer to set a rates at which they consider a um, living level. Now, these are, this is regulation that doesn't count on votes. When you talk about votes within some organization, there you're getting into uh, <coughs> uh, institutions of government, almost a global government who has the most votes, and we're, and we're not there yet. And the fact that what you're talking about is some countries having so immensely more people than other countries, how do you balance off China against Albania, for instance, that it, it can't be done. Um, international institutions, global institutions, where each country is represented, where um, each country has one vote, with some sort of enforcement mechanism to enforce the laws um, is probably a better way of going. There's a pattern for that already. That's the World Trade Organization, which has its enforcement mechanism. <clears throat> Countries that feel country A feels that country B is cheating on trade. It can take a country B before a um, tribunal in Geneva. Uh, the way that this trial is carried out, had, there's a lot of complaints about it, particularly the secrecy, but it is something that is respected. These laws are respected by the nations that belong to the WTO, and by and large, they, they try to live up to them. The uh, United States just got rid of these um, um, steel tariffs because the EU was able to take the case <coughs> to the WTO. In other words, there is a mechanism here that enforces global trade laws, and the countries that belong to the WTO find it in their interest to abide by and respect those laws. The trouble, then, is not with the WTO. The WTO is often blamed for a lot of the ills of globalization. The trouble with the WTO is it's the only one that's there. It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's protecting trade. But other things, like um, in the environment or labor, don't have a WTO type to uh, support them. The ILO, the International Labor Office, is a very weak, toothless organization. There's a UN environmental office down in Nairobi with no enforcement powers at all. The <clears throat> playing field here is not level. What we're a lot of people would want to get rid of the WTO. 
not me, I'd just like to see these other institutions brought up to the level of the WTO so when global globalization rules are set, when the policies of globalization are discussed, a lot of people have a seat at the table, not just the WTO. Expertly answered. Uh, I would now like to turn it over to the audience. There's a mic right here. If you uh, have a question, please. Uh, why don't you step up to the mic and that way we can 